Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I wrote a war. I didn't supply the microphone. So a sandwich walks into a bar. Oops. Bartender looks up and says, I'm sorry, we don't serve food here. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. Give me a break, will you? Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear a radio program on the Internet produced by someone who knows what he's doing. Magic Matt Allen is the producer of True Crimes on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear. And this time we have two lawyer chairs. First we shall kill the lawyers, but not today. <laughs> we'll put it off for a bit. The man in the primary lawyer chair, Don Waldman. By the way, is that vagrant or vagabond? <laughs> uh, uh, Semi-vagrant. From one couch to another. That's the man. <laughs> and the other lawyer chair, Jeffrey A. Cohen. There's so many Jeffrey A. Cohens in the world, you're probably saying, which one? is this this is the one who's the famous best-selling author of mystery fiction with a new novel called the killing of mindy quintana and we're not going to give away the ending thank you <laughs> yes, I, this is how it ends <laughs> i appreciate it yeah well, uh, i gotta tell you ladies and gentlemen uh, mom and dad boys and girls and those of you in uh, here in our home audience and those in the studio yes yes this guy flew all the way from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at 6-something this morning to be live with us in Matt Allen's Lighting Up Lounge. Well, you want to get away from the East, you know. <laughs> what was going on in Philadelphia? You had to get out of there, huh? Well, it's just nice to be here. <laughs> now, you, you, you love flying. We know that. And uh, well, who doesn't? I used to love flying until they started with the security. Well, what, 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 what's been your experience with this, Jeffrey? Flying is a... Uh, is is a very very tough thing to do these days. Let me tell you. Boy, you tactful. They don't uh they don't treat you like they used to. And I don't <laughs> no. think they ever used to treat you very well. <laughs> they never used to treat yeah, you no. like. Well, when I was a kid, you get on the plane. The first thing they give you was uh, a little pack of six Winston cigarettes. Oh my God. <laughs> You want to see something fun? Look at some of the old movies with the old planes in the leg room and the way the so-called stewardesses yeah. actually treated you. Flight attendants. Yeah. Gave you food, not yeah. making you buy snacks <laughs> <laughs> or pay for leg room or pay for well, yeah, luggage. You mentioned that, Jeffrey, before Digressing. the show. You mentioned that the, what the, make you pay for leg room now? They're going to do that? Yeah, apparently you get, to, you get to pay extra if you want to sit in an exit row these days. <laughs> and they started taking out cashews from the little bag of cashews, cashew by cashew, so you won't notice. It's an amazing era. And, of what? course, the prices are just craziness. Right. Well, so that makes up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and plus, they charge you now for bags. So why does a lawyer, as if I didn't know, start to get out of the practice of law Maybe and it's start writing? Mail. Maybe it's the hate mail, Don. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. After law, I went into business for a while. I don't know if you know, I went, uh, I went into the telecommunications business. We had a number, my brother and I had a number of, uh, of uh, automated call centers. And Wait was, a second. Yeah. You're not responsible for my calling the bank and listening to mechanical voices, are you? I'm responsible for that. Holy cow. And I apologize for it heartily. Well, it's been nice meeting you, <laughs> Burl. <laughs> well, there is nothing more aggravating than calling a bank, or my favorite is DirecTV, and spending 20 minutes of prompts, and you can't get to a live person. Well, you know, Don, I'm really glad I flew all the way out here from Philadelphia. <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, now I know who to be mad at. You know, it's funny, though, because I, I, I was telling Burl, 
that uh, it used to be where I, when I escaped from the law, if that's the uh, appropriate term. Uh, With your life, by the way, what's the average life expectancy of a trailer? 55? <laughs> Maybe. But, uh, you know, I used to, I thought that I was going to be great. I wouldn't have to tell people I'm a lawyer anymore. Every time you tell people you're a lawyer, they're not too happy about it. They ask you to spell it as a L-I-A-R? <laughs> but as soon as you tell people that you do automated voice response, you're the person who's responsible for not letting them talk to a human. I, I you wouldn't admit it. go back to telling them that you're a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't admit that. No, no. Uh, the, one, the one that gets me is, is listen, please give me such and such. Spell it. B-U-R-L. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't quite get that. Like, she's got emotion. Like, she's aggravated right. with herself. And she, right. Would you mind saying right. that again? I go, you stupid bitch, you're a machine. No, what they will say is, that, sorry, my mistake. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> it's getting better. It's getting better. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, now, they did have a studies for a while where they would... How much frustration could a person take before they start banging the zero on the phone, trying to find a real person? Well, you know, so, you know, some systems, not any of ours, but some systems, that doesn't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, I've noticed that. You've yeah, you press zero, nothing happens. They just say, I don't understand that response. Yeah. <laughs> My response is calling your competitor. <laughs> but the good news about this is it's kind of like real estate during the bubble. I bet you sold this for a ton of cash. Enough to get here. <laughs> <laughs> Is it enough to get you home? Because <laughs> Matt does have another couch, and if Billy Dilly doesn't show up, maybe I'll take him up on it. <laughs> you wrote some kind of a, a story or an article about the OJ trial, I understand. Yeah. Um, Which has always been an area of fascination in terms of the worst prosecution I've ever seen in terms of putting on a case and how to do it wrong. Absolutely. With all that evidence, it's kind of extraordinary that... Uh, and, and one of the things that really stuck out, which most trial lawyers knew, as you know, is that you should have some identification with a, quote, lead counsel. There wasn't any. Right. It was like a escalating door. Yeah. I mean, everything was wrong. And, of course... Hey, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Oh, right. I hate that. So <laughs> what was the perspective that you were writing on? Um, I was. I actually wrote an article about the uh, the black white disconnect in terms of the reaction to the. Oh, party. you mean the race card? Yeah, you know, and uh, very interesting. I I interviewed a uh, a uh, um, a Penn Faulkner award winning writer named David Bradley, uh, who was uh, a Philadelphian at the time, and uh, also went through some uh, of the news coverage, et cetera. And it's uh, it, it, obviously we all know that the uh, that the reactions were starkly different. Oh. Um, but uh, very interesting. I mean, uh, and uh, well, I read one study that said that not only was there a disconnect between the white black, but also a disconnect if you were Jewish or Latino. Is that so? Yeah. Well, once they brought out that testimony from Furman in terms of his being the equivalent of a racist, I thought the case was over with. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was no longer going to be on the basis of fact. Now we're talking about black and white, and it's just tragic. Well, I was telling that uh, Furman now says, you know, that glove may have been planted. What? Yes. Well, wait a minute. You you have some conspiracy theories or another no, stuff No, I don't have any. This. Well, no, the, the only thing that... that, that You're out of your mind. I know that. He, see, I told you. I told you. Furman never said that. You, you believe these ridiculous friggin' <laughs> This is our soft-spoken producer. I knew, that, I knew that would get Matt out of the booth. He's out of his mind. If the glove doesn't fit, O.J. is still the murderer. <laughs> I was warned. I was warned. Oh, oh, warned. No, it's, the reason I brought you is I knew that would get Matt out of it. Uh, 
on the night the night it happened, I happened to be lurking on the LAPD bulletin board. That's what he does. He lurks. And what they were talking about the night of the murder was all about uh, what's her name? The other chick whose name always slips my mind. Nicole. No, no, not the murder victim, the, her, her friend. Uh, and, uh, you know, how O.J. was mobbed up, that another friend of his was killed the same way in Florida, that he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. This was retribution for... Oh, for uh, Christ's sake, his DNA was all over the place. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, so they were taking an entirely different tack that night. But then again, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't on the jury. I was home watching it on TV. Me too. And uh, I'm going... Well, my wife at the time said, it may be an ass, but... No one ever said he was a bad dad. And what, what, what dad murders the mom and leaves the door open to the condo where the kids are asleep upstairs? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> allegedly, but if he did it, that's not the way to be a good dad. No, that's not. No, <laughs> of course, he wrote a book, If, if, if I Did It. Well, he was trying to make right. some money. That really added flavor to it. <laughs> sure it did. Now he's in the Cosmic Slammer for 10,000 years. Yeah. Uh, something, yeah. I wonder if the, the lack of conviction on the first thing had any influence. Oh, no, no. They always prosecute. <laughs> they that. didn't know anything about that. No, they never they never heard his name before. No, no, no. just a, a robber. <laughs> so aside from being the, the gentleman that we want to spank for uh, coming up with these automated people <laughs> that don't talk to us, what were the other companies that you had? Well, they were all automated call centers. I had one low-tech company in Tennessee which was a uh, sampling company for college kids where college, when, when you came into college, you got a sample box of like um, shaving cream and things like that on your dorm room bed. The assumption <laughs> being that you're forming brand loyalty from the very first day you get away from your parents. <laughs> yeah, a mailbox, a female box. That was a, that was yeah. a nice little company, yeah. Yeah, but that did well. Did you give them uh, those student credit cards with the jacked up rates too? Yes, we did. <laughs> oh, good for you. That's my kind of I, man. I wouldn't say they were jacked up, but there were credit card applications. So here you are. You're, you're an attorney. Uh, you're writing a lot of briefs. Uh, you figure you'll get out of the law game. You, you make a, a nice chunk of money uh, with this voice recognition stuff, and you decide of all the things in the world that you could be, you decide that you're going to be an author. Well, I mean, I wrote in the background of, uh, of both of my other careers, my law career and my business career. That's always been my passion. But it takes a special type of devotion and, uh, and a heck of a lot of time, you know, to write a novel. Were you surprised at what it took? Yeah, how long did it take is the question. I wrote a draft of it in the background. Um, I would say uh, that first draft took me a couple of years because I was doing so many other things. And then when I worked on it full time, it took me about two and a half years. <laughs> And That's then, probably because you were like a wordsmith and a perfectionist about every I being dotted, T being crossed. And it's true. I've been it's down true. this path. I used to write for a magazine. It, it can be crazy. Yeah. I it's, mean, when, 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 you, when you're a brief writer, and I wrote a lot of briefs when I was practicing law, I mean, that's one thing that you get is, uh, is uh, you know, a standard for the written product that you really want to, um, you know, have uh, be in your novel, that's for sure. And so then, of course, you wind up getting an editor who beats the crap out of you. Absolutely. <laughs> How bad was it? It was, it, it was very tough. It's very tough. I mean, everything in that book is like uh, one of your kids, and you love what you've written. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, I, it's like a sensitivity test. Uh, I tell people, yeah. if, you, if you want the words to be sacred, write a play. Yeah. But well, if you're writing a book... You can't be married to it. You can't look at your, as your kids. One of my favorites, maybe, maybe you uh, know the film, Philip Margolin mm -hmm. wrote the fantastic uh, novel Gone But Not Forgotten. He received an advance of $3 million 
for this book, and that was in 1993. Wow. And another $400,000 for paperback rights. And then it was made into a TV movie. But when he first sold the book for $3 million, Obviously, he's ecstatic. This is his first novel. Three million dollars? My God, I, I'd, unheard of. I'd wet my pants. In fact, I may do it yet, just because it sounds so pleasant. I don't think there's an author around today that can get that kind of an advance. Oh, it's incredible. Well, he can screw you, too. I'll remind me to tell you about that. But uh, he's so celebratory. He's getting three million. He's got paid this big advance. And he gets a call from his editor. He goes, you ready to get to work? He says, what do you mean? He says, well, we just paid you three million dollars. For this book because we see a diamond in there but it's still a lump of coal right you got another year's worth of work first of all chapter six is your new chapter one the entire subplot about such and such it goes slows it down Ugh. i mean he thought he was done like hey i got three <laughs> no 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 you're, you're just getting warmed up you bet absolutely true to life yeah. you know you have to but you know it's your book and at the end of the day everybody realizes that you know where there's a conflict, you've got to be the one to decide. But, uh, you know, the, you get a lot of good advice. And uh, the thing is, is that at the end of the day, and I'm so proud of the book, at the end of the day, the book has to sound a single note. You have to be able to fall through that book when you're yeah. reading the book. There can't be things in there that you wish were in there because you like them as set pieces, but they really don't serve the whole. If it so, doesn't move the story forward. It doesn't. It's got to go. But there's stuff on that cutting room floor that makes you want to cry. Yes. <laughs> this is one thing, you know, there's this whole thing now of, of anyone who's got a, a keyboard, suddenly a journalist, right? Because they, they can type. Kind of like Truman Capote said about uh, uh, Harold Robbins, he doesn't write, he types. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> but I mean, that might be a little harsh for Harold, but I mean. My like favorite I say, author of all time. <laughs> just because you buy a stethoscope doesn't make you a doctor. And right. just because you have a keyboard, doesn't mean you're a writer. And it is all it's so called. I'm self published. Well, I'm not self published. I'm, I'm saying putting in character here. Right. If you're writing nonfiction and it's a niche market thing, like, you know, how to be a brilliant lawyer, fine. Self published. I give a seminar, whatever. You know, uh, how, to, uh, how to blow up buildings, whatever it is. Right. But if it's fiction, if it's mystery fiction, and you self-publish it you don't get that editor you don't get the editor you don't get the book distributor you don't get any marketing assistance you and don't. you make no money no you, <laughs> no you don't that's another problem that's the bottom line with self-publishing but yeah so i mean you know it's really uh, it's it's a great advantage having a publisher <laughs> yes. and it's worth everything it takes to get one yeah, yeah it's nice when they have the placement of your book on the right stand Exactly. Yeah. Which well, doesn't happen with your self-publish. you're self-published, you don't even get in the brick-and-mortar stores. That's right. right. They'll That's say, oh, right. your book will be available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. True story. There is a woman who has a self-published book that, yes, you can buy through Amazon.com. I have a book that's been out of print since 1998, and it has higher sales <laughs> and, and, yeah, but is it selling at these used prices that drive me insane? You'll see your brand new book, oh, and that'll God. be at twenty five, whatever, and then there'll be somebody who's got a used one right next to it for fourteen dollars. Same thing with Jeffrey's book. If you notice that, Jeffrey, what's that? If you go to Amazon.com and you look, the killing of Mindy Quintana, a novel by Jeffrey A. Cohen, it'll say available. Have it's on sale right now. Hardback, mm -hmm. right? They're having a special sale mm -hmm. instead of it being whatever twenty six ninety five or seventeen ninety five yep. or something like that, and then it'll say also available, new from, and some price, and used from, right? 
And you go, what the hell? And it's on the same page. Right. You don't even have to go look for it. Which means that what the new from isn't the ones they're selling that you're making money on. It's the advanced reader copies that someone is selling. You know, that's what I heard. Yeah. I heard because uh, I noticed on Amazon that there was a, a copy being sold for like $45. Yeah. And I'm thinking... You can get it brand new. I know. I get the same uh, thing. You can, I, you can buy a copy of Mom Said Kill for six ninety nine, or you can buy it from a collector for eighty five dollars. There's also one for one hundred and twenty six. <laughs> they're crazy. Yeah, but those, uh, you know, those advanced reading copies, they're nice to have. I, I've kept several of them, and I'm willing to sell them for forty five dollars. Yeah, and then of course you got the electronic book issue to deal with. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, some people are doing well with that. I've got a few electronic uh, ebooks up on Kindle. Yeah, and they're kind of you know, limping along. Of course, they're not. They're in a battle now with Apple. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, then they also pull up people who bought what 1984 or something, and it turns out they didn't have the rights to sell it, and they pulled it off people's Kindle. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> wait, wait, where'd my book go? <laughs> Can you imagine someone coming to your house and taking the book off the shelf? I didn't know they could do that. They could actually take it off of your <laughs> yeah, they did. Your, your yeah, Kindle? took it off the Kindle. Wow. Well, where'd it yeah. go? Yeah. <laughs> well, my book's coming out. Uh, you know, in in uh, across all the ebook platforms in the next uh, couple of months. That's a whole nother, uh, whole nother deal. Well, hey, you know, you will discover as time goes by that if you have things you've got the rights back to that have been out of print, you can put them up on Kindle. My nephew, Lee Goldberg, uh, has been doing incredibly well with a lot of his out-of-print books are back up there. And, uh, and so I went, hmm, not a bad idea. <laughs> but you got a price of right, like $2.43 mm-hmm. or buck ninety-nine. come up with a new cover, you yep. know. But uh, it's yeah, hey, it's an additional revenue stream. Sure. Uh, how did you strike the theme? I mean, how did you know you wanted to write about this story? You know, I've always been interested in America's obsession with its violent criminals. We have this tendency to make uh, them into folk heroes and anti-heroes, um, to give them charm and charisma and talents that they don't have, <laughs> and uh, to to aggrandize them. And uh, it kind of uh, really has always stuck in my crawl that we call the you know certain. Uh, killers and certain criminals, masterminds, and when they're most decidedly anything but. Give the example of the BTK guy. You know, the BTK killer, they sure. were searching for him for 20 years. And, uh, you know, the stories were, you know, he's, he's this brilliant guy who doesn't leave any, any clues, and he writes these letters, and nobody can find him. Well, it's like searching for a needle in a haystack, and you don't call the, uh, the needle a genius because you can't find it. <laughs> and, if you, and if you know the story of how the guy was finally caught, um, he actually contacted the police, and uh, he thought he had a, a, an amiable relationship with them. And he said, if I send you some information on a floppy disk, um, are you able to trace it to any particular computer? And they said, no, no buddy. Um, of course not. We're not able to do that. And he trusted them, and he sent them the floppy disk, and they, uh, they had him the next day. One of the most, shows what a genius he was. One of the most aggravating topics that I've been calling trial by talk show is going on in this country, and uh, it's just out of control. You turn on as an, as an extreme example a Nancy Grace show, and you find out who's being tried today. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an extraordinary era because this is how these celebrity killers are becoming celebrities. Well, you you heard the show we had with Dan Zupanski, didn't you, Jeff? Did. That's a perfect example. Amazing example. I mean, and. Uh, you know, you have all of these, uh, you, you have different types of celebrity killers, I think. So that, so that some of our listeners remember it, uh, yeah. this is the, the book Trophy Kill, and it's about a Canadian murderer a la 
Hannibal Lecter, who chops somebody up, etc., in his own in his bathtub, and then just sort of walks into the police and said, "I found a body in my bathtub." <laughs> I don't know how it got there. I don't know how it got there, and all he ever wanted was celebrity status. Right. Right. And to, to make it worse, and it's kind of controversial in that, uh, at least in Canada, when uh, Zapansky wrote this book, the killer got 30% of the proceeds. He would have, except they changed the law. Did they change it after well, that? Yeah, he, see, that was one of the things Zapansky said. He knew the law was in the process of right. being changed, but he didn't bring that up to the killer. Well, I'm glad to hear that punchline. Yeah, oh no, so we told the killer, yeah, I'll give you 30%, but he already knew the law was, you know, being in the process of being changed, and the guy wasn't going to get a dime. Yeah. And now in America, it's been that way for a long time. I had someone send me an email that day. He goes, how much do you pay these killers <laughs> to do the book? And I don't, I'm like, if I get paid, I'll be the damn killer. Right. Yeah, and on top of it, in that situation, the killer contacted the author and said, I, you know, I want to meet with you and let's, let's do a book. Yeah. yeah, let's do a book. Well, I was kind of lucky since it's fiction. I didn't have to pay a real killer. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like the, uh, the Robert De Niro, uh, Jerry Lewis movie, King of Comedy. Great movie. And a great movie, and it's the same thing. You know, people become yeah. obsessed with wanting to be famous. Absolutely. And what's interesting is some of these killers, they don't kill to become famous, but amazingly, when the opportunity presents itself, they are able to, you know, for lack of a better term, rise to the occasion. And they and they are who we want them to be when we shine their our beams on them. So, uh, you know, they really uh, rise to the occasion. I think Gary Gilmore is a perfect example of that. Yeah, Gary Gilmore, the, the Red Light Bandit. Gary Gilmore. Uh, well, that was, uh, well, what was his name? Who's shooting somebody in the back then? What, what the hell is that? We're going to take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with Jeffrey Cohen, and we're going to talk about uh, celebrity killers and what's going on with them today in your life. Be right back. There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom said kill and now back to true crimes with burl bear and don Wolden. and our special guest jeffrey a cohen author of the new bestseller the killing of mindy quintana i'd like to mention if i may a little blatant self-promotion tomorrow night 10 o'clock on the oxygen network on their show snapped the movie the tv show about women who snap and kill I'm going to be on there, but I'm not the woman who snapped. Trust me. Mm. No, not this time. You're talking about these celebrity killers. Uh, I think one of the most incredible s examples of the situation, what is it, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker? We got all these wedding proposals. Oh, they do, they, they do. All do. It's unbelievable to me. The Bundy brothers. married somebody, too. Yeah. 
I just can't wait to marry a serial killer. He wouldn't hurt me. <laughs> now the Menendez brothers are both married in prison. And, uh, and not to Raul, their roommate, either. <laughs> well, sometimes they are able to get uh, conjugal rights, you see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, more than my editor gives Whatever me. Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pardon my sense of humor. I'm not in prison. I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, well, hi there, Michael. This is not just drop by. Hello, Michael. It's nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he knows famous people. Uh, you were just here to talk about, before the break, an example of someone becoming a celebrity after they were in prison, guy who writes the book Belly of the Beast. That's right. I mean, and that's really the 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 uh, the killer that got me, that inspired me to write the novel that I wrote, just because of the injustice and the irony of this particular case. Jack Henry Abbott was a state-raised convict, a murderer, and he began writing letters to Norman Mailer, the famous novelist, who was writing a book at the time about Gary Gilmore, and uh, said, "Hey, you know, Norman, I can really tell you what prison life is really like." And he wrote him these very violent very uh, irrational um, uh, um, letters that Norman Mailer th thought showed a lot of talent, and he whacked them up into subject headings, wow. um, edited them, and uh, they were published in a little book called In the Belly of the Beast. And um, Norman Mailer, along with some others, helped this guy get paroled. So the guy's paroled to a, a literary fetting, and, um, and six weeks, not, not six weeks after he was uh, released from prison, he um, the night before a laudatory review of his book in the New York Times was going to appear, he goes into an all-night diner. He asks to use the men's room. He's told that it's for employees only. And uh, Jack Henry Abbott stabs to death the 22-year-old counterman who refused him the use of the men's room. And uh, that's, that's tragic enough. Um, the irony of that case, the really terrible irony of that case, is that this 22-year-old Richard Aiden um, was working the night shift while during the day he was trying to become a writer himself. So you have the, this, this killer being handed a literary career on the back of a lifetime of crime, um, taking away all of that possibility from a 22-year-old kid who's working for it, just like all of us work for the things we want in obscurity until we make it. And that injustice and that irony really stayed with me. And that was the inspiration for, for my novel, which is obviously a very different story, but has that... Well, yeah, well, without, I mean, this is a very, very good book. In fact, I, I even recommended this book officially on the dust jacket. Yes, and I appreciate that so much. Paul. Which made me feel like I had some status because I'm on, I'm on the dust jacket. <laughs> it says, clever, twisted, and ultimately insightful, Jeff Cohen's The Killing of Mindy Quintana upends legality and redefines justice, a dazzling debut novel, says Pearl Bear, and he probably knows what he's talking about. Uh, Just ask him. Yeah, you have created in this book... One of the most despicable characters I've ever read in literature. <laughs> well, thank you. He is a despicable guy. Yeah, I mean, from, from page one, I did not like this guy at right. all. Right. That's well, you know, the, the, the main character, the killer, his name is Freddy. And uh, it's no surprise that there's going to be a killing. It's in the title. Um, <laughs> kind of a giveaway, yeah. And he's, and he's an obscure and frustrated department store manager with dreams he does little to further whose little life turns big when he kills an old college girlfriend and then begins writing a book uh, that drags her through the mud. Uh, excerpts are appearing to acclaim. There's a televised trial in the offing. It's a very sensational crime. And he's becoming this uh, American icon, uh, this peculiar icon, uh, the poet murderer, the jailhouse literary sensation. And his own lawyer 
watches and discusses as this guy builds his acclaim with the bones of his victim and uh, vows to stop him. That's the plot. It's a very good plot, and it's got a great twist in the tale, which I'm not going to tell you because you've got to read the book to find out. I appreciate that. that. It's not going to give away the ending. The ending is too cool. Uh, very smooth, very unsound. It's what catches you totally off guard, which is a real trick when you do a... Uh, and uh, i got to ask you about this. Sure. We won't say what the ending is, but it, it is a surprise ending. Uh, having written a book with a surprise ending, I was so afraid that... I know what you're going to say. That the book was co-written by Samuel Morris. <laughs> that I'm telegraphing it, right? And so when I sent the, 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 the novel uh, to my agent, my first question was, did you see it coming? Right. And the answer was? Because she didn't see it. Oh, there you didn't go. see it coming. You and did about, it right. Yeah, I was so afraid because you know you know you, you you know you can't cheat the audience. They have to be able to you know exactly you know, to, to figure it out themselves or you know. But if you give them too much, I got to tell you, bro. You know, I really was not concerned about that, and I'll tell you why. I think the the twist in the in in the book is wholly unprecedented. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I really think that you can't see it coming, uh, and. Uh, and when it happens, it, and the feedback that I've gotten is that it's a completely shocking uh, twist. Yeah, well, it is. Did and you write to that conclusion when you first started the book, or how did you do it? Or did you have an outline? No. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I can, it, it's really interesting how some of the best things in your book happen. And, uh, and I, you know, somebody asked me, you know, what's a first draft for? And I think people look at first drafts in different ways. And some people, and I think my legal training would have had me do this, but I didn't want to do another brief. <laughs> and that would have been to, you know, know the ending, know the beginning, know every single thing that happens uh, in between before you begin writing. And I didn't do that. I think that uh, in fiction, one of the best things you can do is let yourself play in your first draft. Yeah, but what happens if you get into a writer's block? You know, go on to a different to a different chapter. My mom taught me when I was 12 years old. My mother was a journalist. Yeah. And I asked, what's this writer's block thing I've heard about, Mom? And she says, doesn't exist. She says, I'll tell you how. She says, if you ever think you have it, it's real simple. Write crap. <laughs> no, I've, I've represented <laughs> several prominent screenwriters who, during the process of a divorce, they would sit in front of a typewriter and stare at it. Yeah, and then I have known other people in, the, in that same process. That is where they were able to work because it was their escape from that emotional unpleasantness is like entering a different world. And it's also, you know, it also may be that you don't want to have another marital asset. Uh, <laughs> good thinking, good thinking. See, lawyers. Lawyers, yeah. Gotta love them. Can't live with them and can't live with them. <laughs> Difficult situation. Uh, now, as my mom said, is that write anything. Uh, just write anything at all to get yourself into yeah. the zone. Doesn't and, matter. And you know what I would do is I would go on to a different chapter. Yeah. I would I would I would try to you know I would try to move on to a to a to a chapter that I either didn't want to write or that was business to write, but I knew it had to get done and I knew how to do it, but it wasn't exciting to me. So I got it done. And you always what's interesting about those chapters is that you find something in the chapter that turns you on, and then that's what the chapter. Becomes. Yeah, yeah. What did you write at home in a cabin? How'd you approach it? <laughs> I know this one. I, yeah, <laughs> I wrote. I wrote it home. I wrote it home. <laughs> no, you did. Tell well, them where you went. Tell well, them where you went. at the end of the book, when I had it, when I was, when I, you know, when I was in the editing process, and I had uh, my final, my final cut from the from from the editor, and I had to make a lot of decisions, and I had to, you know, get it in the final form, very last chance. I went to uh, a little town outside of Madrid called Toledo, 
medieval town and a uh, beautiful place to be. And I spent a month there. Well, that sounds great. And uh, I just I went out every morning. I got six diet cokes and some local <laughs> some local breakfast. That oh, this is a local tart. <laughs> and I bring it back to the room. Anything rather than sit down and write, huh? Yeah. Well, that's the problem. If you go somewhere like that, there weren't any distractions. So, about how thrilled were you with that? I, it, it was the perfect place to be because there weren't any distractions. After you did the town, you know, for the first three days, you really knew it inside out and. It was pretty easy to sit in your room, look out the window at the beautiful, you know, architecture, and, and do your uh, do your work. Yeah, I wrote a, a good portion of my book, Capture the Saint, sitting uh, in Loon Lake, Washington, in the little store there where they serve kind of strange little hamburgers, uh, with uh, my computer sitting down, looking out over the lake, yep. and people walking around me talking and all that stuff. And you know, just it was just a good place to sit and write. You know, some people need quiet. Some people need activity going on. I'm, I'm person. I need quiet. Yeah, I would think so. And some people use music constantly. Yeah. Our, uh, next week we have Greg Olson on uh, his book Twisted Faith, and I don't want to steal thunder from him, but uh, he used Madonna albums. Whoa! <laughs> wow. And and if you go to the uh, twistedfaith.com, the website for his book, there's a section that says music, and it's if this book were a musical, and he has songs for the different characters, this is a horrifying true crime story. You know, in this part of the book, this part of the book, there was one where the entire book I wrote with with one song that just I had play over and over again, which was uh, uh, Dixie Flyer by Randy Newman. And instead of you just find a song that, for some reason, resonates with the brainwave pattern or whatever it is that you're you're on that you're comfortable with while you're writing. And uh, in fact, there's a whole discussion of this on. Uh, uh, one of the writers, you know, email list. What do you listen to? Or what do you do while you write? Yeah. And some of you use classical. Some that uh, Corey Mitchell use like his heavy metal, uh, death metal rock bands. You know, people use different stuff. I like to run old. Uh, uh, go with that horrible movie we saw the other night. Uh, Flu Bird Horror. <laughs> God. On Sci-Fi Network, folks. If you get a chance to see this piece of crap, do uh -huh. not miss the opportunity. It is so bad. Why'd you watch it? Because it was so bad. It was, it was, I think it was that, uh, Laurie Downey Jr., what's that film that uh, Greg Brady, uh, well, with Tiffany? No, oh. That's not a film, that, that horrible film you did where some giant piranha. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Barry Williams and Tiffany uh, did this film, Mega Piranha. <laughs> Mega Piranha sounds like a winner. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Any movie starring Barry Williams. Any movie starring Barry Williams and Tiffany with a giant piranha that <laughs> a mutant strain of giant uh, ferocious piranha escape from the Amazon wow. and eat their way towards Florida. And that's a true story. <laughs> film does it actually happen. <laughs> so, I mean, I get films such as this <laughs> and run them and just kind of look up every once in a while and go, oh, my I saw God. some of the reviews on your book refer to it and, and, and as an analogy to Catch-22. Yeah. Which is a, it's an amazing book if you can read it by Joseph Heller. Yep. How do you find the analogy? Where is it? Well, I'll tell you something. Catch Twenty Two is uh, the the very book that made me want to be a writer. Did it? I absolutely love that book. Um, to create a a, a a surreal world like that and have the book work as a serious novel was amazing to me. And uh, you know, my book does combine. Um, certain uh, surreality in certain chapters and dealing with certain situations. And the most important thing about it, because I have these really straight chapters too, is you have to have 
rules. I mean, your book is a whole world, and the, wo and the world has to work according to the rules. And uh, that was one of the most difficult things to, uh, to do, was to make both of those things work side by side. The corporate world is depicted in, uh, in, in my novel in a very surrealistic way. It really aims to show you how the main character is frustrated and demeaned by, uh, by, by his, his perceived dead-end job and with this meaningless system of reward. And, uh, oh, yeah, he's being like hierarchies. China Design Salesman of the Month or something. Right, and everybody's <laughs> congratulating him. He has the possibility of becoming Manager of the Year, and to him that would just document his mediocrity. <laughs> he, he considers it to be... Uh, he considers it akin to being that he says it's the disgusting third tier celebrity of a local weatherman. That's <laughs> that's well, his line. For in, it. in this town, weathermen are big celebrities. Are they? Okay. <laughs> Ask Danny Romero. Or what's it? What's the other guy's name? Man Mountain Dave or whatever. <laughs> or Dallas Rain or whatever. It is. We'll be right back after this exciting message from one of our friendly sponsors. There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime, Mom said kill. Hi, I'm Edgar Award-winning true crime writer, legendary Burl Bear. When I'm not being emasculated by Ike Turner's thug son, I'm listening to Outlaw Radio with Magic Matt. But I'd rather be emasculated by Ike Turner's thug son. <laughs> Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. And in case you're wondering about Ike Turner's Thug Son, if you go on YouTube and uh, type in Burl um, Bear, Ike Turner, Don Waldman, <laughs> you'll... There's a, a video up there. That he didn't was, hit me. No, he hit me, though. Bam. <laughs> it would have broken my nose. But I'll tell you, it was divine intervention. Stand outside. I just happened to turn my head to the side, and I'm blind in my left eye. So I didn't, oh, didn't see it coming, right? And so he goes to punch me in the face, and just purely by divine whatever, I turned my head at that exact moment so that the fist, instead of hitting me full on, just knocks my glasses off and cuts my nose. I went... Why don't you knock my glasses off for you? Trying to hit me? <laughs> if I was trying to hit you, you'd be on the. You know, right. It was one of those. Uh, and boy, it was upset when it went all over Outlaw Radio worldwide and became a running joke. Oh, as we said, you don't want to punch a living legend who has an international radio show. <laughs> I'll never do it. <laughs> Please don't. I promise Please not don't. to. Oh, so, I make it a rule never to punch anybody who's blurred my book. You really, yes, <laughs> that that is wise thinking on your part. Now you realize, of course, that, that Don and I and Matt and we're, we're spoiling you because you're going to take this, which it is, as the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. 
and you're going you're going to leave here and go on some other radio show expecting this same wonderful treatment the the uh, you know the libations the atmosphere yep. yeah you're going to sit down in an interview and they're going to say well tell us about the book and then you have a little moment of silence (laughs) or they'll start off while we really like the surprise ending where such and such happens Uh, (laughs) in in your book you're at least attempting to and doing a pretty good job of recreating trials and trial scenes that has to be so difficult because a trial in and of itself is so emotional there's such infighting and battling, just getting evidence in and arguing. How do you go about recreating this emotional arena in a book? You know, I've been going to see trials since I was a little kid. Yeah, that's I what used, I read. I used to uh, skip school. My father is a lawyer. He used to have an office across from our city hall in Philadelphia, and it's this unbelievably beautiful, imposing um, building with these gorgeous courtrooms inside. And I, I would go to my father, and he'd circle trials for me to see. I'd be 12 years old in legal intelligence, or I'd go across the street, and I'd watch them. And I fell in love with trials. I just have always uh, loved trials. I've watched them on TV. I go to see them in person. And, um, and then I went to law school and uh, participated in many trials. So, you know, what trials are, <clears throat> excuse me, at their best, they are very dramatic. They're naturally dramatic. And, uh, you know... You know, you you pluck people at a time, a defendant at a time, and you put them in a courtroom in purgatory, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you have uh, the prosecutor making him worse than he is, and the def- and the defense attorney making him better than he is, and and society sitting in the box deciding whether this guy gets back in or whether he uh, or whether he or whether he goes to jail and is removed from society. So it's inherently inherently dramatic, and um, and this is a dramatic case. And so I really felt um, I, 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 it felt very natural to write those scenes. Did it? Did it? I mean, I, the hardest thing to recreate is that penultimate moment when the jury has reached a verdict and you're waiting for it to be read. Oh, yeah. That's what I want to hear how you get that one across. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we in, 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 in my particular book, we, had the, uh, we have the preliminary hearing, and the preliminary hearing is very dramatic. And, uh, you know, everybody's there. It's sort of like um, a, a trial uh, is, and some preliminary hearings are like that. The one in this novel is. Usually they're to determine probable cause to go over to trial. That's what they're about. Right, and it's always a foregone conclusion that there'll be enough evidence. Sure. Or almost always. Otherwise, you sure. don't. It's a free that, discovery device for the defense. That's one of the arguments. That's one of the arguments I've heard prosecutors use and even use here that I bitch about. And that is, well... We wouldn't take it to court unless there was enough evidence to prove the person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Which is saying they're telling people he's guilty because we're taking the case to court. Sounds like argument to me, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, sometimes you know you take it's early on in the process, but you still want to see how everything looks on stage, and you want to put the prosecution through their paces. So you really can have a very exciting preliminary hearing. Um, where you really get a good idea of what the trial's going to look like, and that's the idea of it. Um, so that's the, that, that's the scene, I think, that you're, you're talking about, and it's a pretty, it's pretty long courtroom um, drama with some very dramatic uh, turns. Now, uh, Steve Martini, who uh, writes legal thrillers, yep. uh, my friend G.M. Ford, who writes private eye novels, had a courtroom thing coming up, and uh, he didn't know quite how to handle it, so he, he calls Steve on the phone. He says, uh, Steve, I got this situation. He said, blah, blah, blah. Now, now how, how does this, you know. He says, Jerry, 
Just do what I do. Make it up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or we have the, the other classic story where I got told to the Eisenhower just a couple of years ago. But uh, my nephew's first book, uh, <laughs> which he wrote the name of Ian Ludlow, uh, is sex and violence. And my mother, who is quite elderly, wants to read a copy of his book. Uh -huh. And he says, Nana, you won't want to read the book. It's nothing but sex and violence, sex and violence. Well, to my mom, sex and violence means the thorn birds. Right? So she, she, she wants several copies of this. Okay, so he sends it to her. She reads it. She has a conniption fit. She calls him up. This is filthy. <laughs> that dirty book. This, this is nothing but nonstop graphic sex and gory violence. And thinking real fast, he says, well, Uncle Burl and Uncle Stan, that's my brother, they helped me with the book. So first she calls my brother, the lawyer, right? and uh, says, Stan, how could you pervert your little nephew? He's just going to college. This book is filthy. My brother, thinking real fast, says, Mom, I'm an attorney. All I helped him with were the courtroom scenes and the legal questions. Anything else, you have to talk to Burl. So now my mom calls me, right? Burl, how could you? The book is filthy. All this sex, how could you do that? I said, Mom, honest to God, this is true. I only wrote one of the sex scenes in the book. And she goes, it was the one with the ice cream, wasn't it? <laughs> she says, yeah, yeah, Mom. I says, I thought so. <laughs> Burl, I have a... Uh, my, my, uh, my brother's father-in-law calls me on the phone, and he says to me, you know, Jeff, you know, uh, he's a teacher. He says, would this book be appropriate for, you know, seventh graders because I can have, I, you know, you know the, the school buy the book and, you know, we'll have, you know, you know 40, 50 copies and we'll get all the, all the seventh graders to read it. Maybe it'll be hundreds of copies. I said, uh, I, I'm really sitting there toward, you know, I'm toward, you know, how, you know, how important is my brother's father-in-law to me? No, very important. But now I told him, I said, you know, look, I, I don't think so. Why don't you get Linda Lovelace's biography and give that to me? Right. You know, and if, if they like that, then, uh, then, then turn them on to this one. Exactly. Now you've been doing a lot of signings, a lot of traveling, and not only just coming out here for his first real exciting radio appearance, but, uh, you've been doing a lot in the Philadelphia area. I have. And uh, tell us about your opening signing. My opening signing was, or really, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I had a kick. I had a kickoff party. Um, yeah, that's what I was looking for. The words on, on, uh, on May fifth um, at the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia, which is the which is the center of the artistic community in Philadelphia. It's right right center city, and uh, very well attended. Had about uh, three hundred people. And uh, it was just, it was wonderful. It was one of the best nights of my life. My, everybody I loved was in the room, and a lot of people I didn't know. And uh, it was a very successful night, beautiful night. Didn't you have a kickoff at uh, some local prison? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, I was going to have the kickoff party at a, at, a, at a museum prison that we have called Eastern State Penitentiary. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Okay, and that was what we were going to do, and it was going to be perfect. Everybody loved it, except that it turned out that they, that they, uh, they don't have temperature control. Ooh. They don't have, I, I think... Uh, no, all the chairs were electric. Issue. Jeffrey, it's a prison. <laughs> <laughs> it's a prison, yeah. <laughs> well, were you <laughs> expecting the Hilton? <laughs> well, I was going to say, and plus, it turns out the inmates don't have any money to buy books. <laughs> yeah, that's so. a problem. Hello. <laughs> now, I, I did do a, a book tour, where a true crime book, where the... Fortunately, he wasn't a killer. Uh, Phil Champagne, the book, Man Overboard, Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne. And he was out of prison by this time. So I took him on the book tour with me so you could have the book signed by the author and by the criminal. <laughs> Cute. Yeah. yeah. Bill Clinton has a copy, by the way. <laughs> yes. what, what does he use it for? The doorstop, probably. <laughs> now, I got to warn you, though, because this will happen. 
sooner or later, you'll be booked to do a reading or a signing, and you'll show up in some new location where, you know, then there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, <laughs> and you'll, you'll be sitting there. Oh, I know. Especially if it's a Barnes and Noble that's not connected to a mall or something, but it's like a standalone behind a car lot, right? <laughs> and you sit there at the table playing with your pen. It's something you can look forward to. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to the whole thing. <laughs> I, I tell you, I run up and down the aisles of bookstores, you know, snapping and biting at people's pants legs like an inbred Pomeranian, <laughs> getting them to buy the book. You know, anything it, like a vigilantic salesman. Well, you know, this is my first novel, so everything's exciting about it. You go into a Barnes & Noble and you see it on the, in the stacks or you see it on the table. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. I know what, what the answer is, but share for our audience what it's like the day that the book first arrives at your home and you open it up and there's the book. Well, that is a magnificent day. Uh, it's a truly magnificent day. You've already received, you know, the, the advanced reading copies. And the advanced reading copies, for people who don't know, are thrown together. They're used to, to sell to bookstores. It's a, an approximation of the book. It's paperback. The book come, came out in hardback. And, uh, you know, there's mistakes here and there. It's, it, it hasn't been finally proofread. When you get that um, hardcover book that's just, you know, it's been through proofreading and it's been through every process, and, uh, and you finally have it in your hand. It's just the distillation of everything that you've been doing. And you get to take all that stuff in your house that for years has been piling up. All those, all those, all those post-it notes, all those emails to yourself that you printed out at 3 in the morning saying, you better do this, don't forget to do that. And uh, you, you put God, them in That's a great room. idea. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. My God, that is a brilliant idea. Send myself emails reminding me what to do. Were you involved in the selection of the book jacket? You know, I was not. I had another idea. Because that has to make you real nervous if you weren't. Oh, yeah. Some authors <laughs> go crazy. Because that sells your book. It's absolutely what sells your book. And I was kept out of the process. Um, and, and, and probably, uh, I'm a micromanager, so it was probably good to keep me out of the process. I wound up with a cover that I really, really like. But I had a different idea for the cover, and uh, and they thought that it was too uh, literary and not not and not and not uh, commercial enough. Yeah, the commercial makes a big difference. Yeah, and I always worry about the covers. I've been very fortunate with the uh, uh, the covers of mine. Them. The nice thing about Pinnacle, who, uh, who was my publisher on the True Crime books, is they know how to go to, to get their audience. I mean, they got it down to a science. They have their a special look, you know, yep. for their books, a special structure. And they, they came up with what they call the Burl Bear design for my book. So all my books share a similarity in typeface and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they try to do a branding thing. Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be the, uh, the same with you. See, because not right now, and I'll hold the book up to the microphone so that people can see it. <laughs> You'll notice it says, The Killing of Mindy Quintana, in giant, huge letters. And then it says, A Novel by Jeffrey A. Cohen. Now, there are millions of Jeffrey A. Collins, but this is the one who wrote the book. The yep. day will come when, and probably on the ebook edition, the Jeffrey A. Cohen will be branded and it'll be big, bigger than the title. Well, I look forward to that day. Yeah. That's the old name above the title thing. Yep. You know, it's like with actors. You know, instead of it saying Tootsie starring Dustin Hoffman, yeah, it says Dustin to, Hoffman, Tootsie. Don't you have to kind of earn that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or threaten. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I know somebody. <laughs> yeah, I just give a warrior like that. And uh, as, 
for those of you, a lot of people listen to the show, in addition to those who listen because they're fascinated with true crime, but people do listen to the show because we do give insights into writing and publishing. And a lot of people want to be writers or publishers. Not as many want to be lawyers because the really smart people know there's more money in being a lawyer than there is in being a, a writer. I'll debate that with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you being a lawyer would win the debate. <laughs> uh, as far as publicity, promotion, etc., cetera, uh, a lot of that uh, is, is in the hands of the, the author himself these days or herself. Absolutely true. Um, I were, uh, you know, my publisher is great, and uh, they kick in, um, I think, as uh, much as, uh, as, as any uh, a publisher does for a first-time novelist. But, you know, uh, if, if all the publishing houses these days rely on the writer to do a lot of the promotion, a lot of the marketing... Um, the social network marketing, which is so important these days, and that kind of thing, that's on you. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they contribute with ideas and with some money toward, uh, toward you know, specific uh, uh, initiatives. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, uh, in, in Center City, Philly, we have SEPTA buses with a banner that runs on the uh, side of the bus that says, uh, Philly has a new celebrity. He's a killer. And it has a that is a picture of the uh, of the book cover. That's a great yeah. promo. Yeah, I really. I, I, yeah, does I it really make you feel it. like you're the killer celebrity? Well, no picture of me. I, I said <laughs> I wanted to sell books. Don't put a picture of me up there. But uh, um, but no, it's an exciting promotion. And I get I get emails all the time from people. Hey, I saw your bus. I saw your bus. You say fine. You saw the bus. Now buy the now book. Buy the damn book. <laughs> but uh, do people come up to you and say, Hey, I hear you got a book. May I have one? You got one in your car? I get that. Yeah. Sure. So you've got this book done. Are you you're on your second book now. I am. I have a second. What are you going to do? Yeah, I'm writing a book called A Plea for Leniency, and it's about a, uh, a white shoe criminal defense attorney who's just lost his case defending a corporate American CEO, a, a real titan, and he feels that he's um, failed an innocent man. And uh, A Plea for Leniency is his very unorthodox uh, uh, request of the prosecutor for compassion in, uh, in recommending sentence. And so it's written in the form, uh, in, in the formal form of a, of, a, uh, of a legal document. But what it is, is it's the story of, of this uh, corporate titan's life. And uh, the gestalt of it, the argument is, um, augurs for a recommendation of leniency. So it's very Sounds fascinating. Yeah, thank you. And what year, what year do we look forward to this? I know how the publishing world goes. This is 2010, so we're like, about what, 2015? <laughs> Next year or so. <laughs> Next year or so. <laughs> At least a year. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is called The Killing of Mindy Quintana, Jeffrey A. Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, not to be confused with Jimmy the Printer, who's Jimmy Cohen without the E-N. <laughs> but it's Jeffrey A. Cohen, Killing of Mindy Quintana, now in hardback, makes a wonderful addition to your library, even if you are completely illiterate. Mere possession of this book speaks volumes. Now, this is well worth the read. <laughs> it is. It's a page-turner. And I'll bet you anything, you know what's going to happen, don't you? It's going to be a movie. It's not a t if not a theatrical film. This will be at least yeah, a Yeah, it's about time film. somebody did a movie about this. I'm and not against it. I'm not against I it. I hope maybe, not. Maybe Michael Hersenson will cast it. There you go. <laughs> we'll find out. Thank you again, Jeffrey, for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Well Thank done, you Jeff. so much. Yeah.